Thank you, Rich. Thank you, musicians. And thank you, because you're musicians too. And together we sing this wonderful praise of our Lord. Thank you so much for singing. Uh, please turn in your Bibles now to Revelation 19 once again. You know, there, there's something about food and celebrations. The, the two go together. And as Baptists, we kind of know how to put on a spread, right? Uh, whenever there's a significant celebration, a significant event to celebrate, we like to eat. And specifically, we like to share a meal together that we feast and we celebrate together. Now, when a couple gets married, they're actually, in our culture, there's a couple of meals. There's a, oftentimes, there's a, a rehearsal dinner the night before the wedding, and then there's a reception following. Sometimes that reception is rather simple. Sometimes it's more lavish. But in the ancient Hebrew customs of Jesus' time and of John's time, uh, Hebrew weddings were, had, had a very definite set of traditions. There was a, a very festive banquet. There was feasting and celebration that could go on for the better part of a week. If you recall, our Lord performed His very first miracle at a wedding feast. And as joyful as those occasions today and in that day are and were, what we're going to talk about this morning is infinitely more joyful. These temporal celebrations pale in comparison to the great marriage supper of the Lamb, which we find described here or referred to here in Revelation chapter 19. Three things that we'll look at as we work our way through these verses 6 through 10. First of all, the wedding feast is introduced with great rejoicing. And secondly, we're going to look at the imagery of the feast. And thirdly, the angelic benediction at the end. So, first of all, this wedding is introduced with great rejoicing. In verse 6, we read, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. So, we find this announcement of this wedding, and yet it comes with such power and volume, it's nearly overwhelming to John. Uh, one of the commentators, Dennis Johnson, uh, says, uh, he, he, he says it comes with this threefold simile. It's what seems to be the voice of a great multitude. It's like the voice of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Now, all three of those references actually have significance in the book of Revelation. This great multitude describes the redeemed saints in heaven, and we find that in chapter 19, verse 1. But the roar of many waters in chapter 1 of Revelation is actually attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ when He speaks. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, he refers to the sound of the Almighty as like the sound of many waters. And then, these mighty peals of thunder point in the book of Revelation that several points to the glory of God the Father. In chapter 4, verse 5, it says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. It, it reminds us of the scene in Exodus chapter 19 when the children of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai and God reveals Himself in these great uh, roars of thunder. 
But with all the volume, let's look at the content. This great multitude, the cry is hallelujah. Now, last week, we looked at the first five verses in chapter 19, and the title was The Hallelujahs of Heaven. And I I said then that chapter 19 in Revelation is the only place in the English Bible where the word hallelujah appears. Now, there are a number of Psalms where the Hebrew word hallelujah is translated praise to Yahweh or praise the Lord. But the actual English translation, or the transliteration actually, hallelujah appears only in Revelation 19. That's interesting because how often do we in our normal uh, conversation, we just rejoice and go hallelujah, and we'd expected to find that term sprinkled throughout the Bible, but it's only here in Revelation chapter 19. Now, I don't want you to hurry past and miss the power of what John hears. I want you to imagine for yourself. Let's let's use our sanctified imagination. I want you to imagine you are in an enormous auditorium, and I mean enormous. And there is a choir composed of thousands and thousands of singers, a massive orchestra, and all together they are performing the Handel's Messiah, and they come to the Hallelujah Chorus, and they sing, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And the sound and the volume and the beauty of that music comes to you, and it just overwhelms your senses. Do do you see that? Can can you get a sense of what that might be like? That's way beyond anything we can produce when we have our Messiah sing along by a little commercial. It's the second Sunday night in December this year. But anyhow, just this, this enormous, overwhelming Joy wells up inside of our hearts as we think about that day. But hear me. We can conceive of this earthly concert in our imagination, but the scene John is describing is actually beyond anything we could ever conceive or imagine. It is overwhelming. It defies description, which I believe is why John piles up this threefold simile of the voice of a great multitude of mighty waters, of loud thunder, impressing on our minds the majesty of this glorious proclamation. Don't miss that. John is in awe. And when we get to verse 6, it, we see the cause of their rejoicing. Hallelujah. Why? For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Actually, the cause is twofold. Number one, God reigns. But number two, in verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. So let's look, first of all, at this statement, the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, this is a glorious truth. God has all power. He rules and reigns. He is the sovereign King over His universe. And as we read in the Psalms, the Lord reigns, He's clothed or robed in majesty. Now, if you were a Greek scholar and you look at this statement, the Lord our God Almighty reigns, you might expect that word reigns to be in the present tense, speaking about a present and continuing ongoing action. But actually, it's what we call an ingressive aorist. Aorist tends to focus on a single point in time, and aggressive means a beginning point. And so what they're actually saying is, the Lord our God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Now, some of you are going, no, no, wait a minute, um, 
hasn't God been reigning all along? And the answer is yes, of course he has. But it's actually a restatement. We see the same type of thing said in chapter 11, verse 15. When the seventh angel blew his trumpet, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The evident reign of God is not evident in this world yet. And in fact, it says further in chapter uh, uh, 11, Verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have take your, taken your great power and begun to reign. One of the commentators calls this the establishment of his redemptive and eschatological kingdom in its full and final phase with the subjection of all his enemies and all his rivals. Now, I've said before, I, I, I understand the book of Revelation to be given to us in what's been called progressive parallelism. We find a progress in the narrative of Revelation, but it's not a linear chronology of last events. It's actually the same uh, glorious story told seven times over with different emphases and different perspectives. And so here we have in chapter 11, he has begun to reign. We find in chapter 19, again, he has begun to reign. The very same thing is being proclaimed, but two different emphases are being brought out of that one same glorious event. And again, you may ask, isn't God reigning already? And the answer is, of course He is. But in the world that we live in, His rule and His reign are not evident right now. Men still defy His law. God's glory is despised. The knowledge of God is suppressed in the pride and the unbelief and the wickedness of natural man. The nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, and the kings of the earth conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. And we see evidence of that all around us. But on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that confession will be in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every creature. All creatures of our God will recognize that Jesus reigns. His enemies will be subdued. And so Revelation gives us this prophetic glimpse of that glorious and that triumphant day. The Lord God Almighty has begun to reign. Every eye sees His power, His glory, His righteousness. Every enemy is defeated. And He, every redeemed saint will celebrate and rejoice with loud hallelujahs. Again, the Lord is sovereign. He's reigning now. Even when darkness hides that glory, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, his, my anchor holds within the veil. Christ is our solid rock. He is ruling. He is reigning. He is on his throne. Even when by natural appearances, it seems like the enemy is winning. So that's the first great cause of rejoicing on that glorious day. The Lord has begun to reign. He has subdued His enemies. But secondly, the wedding of the Lamb has begun, we read about in verse 7. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we find God speaking of Israel as His bride. In Exodus, or excuse me, Isaiah verse 50, chapter 54 and verse 4, we read, For your maker is your husband, 
The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. And in Isaiah 62, verse 4, we read, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Christian, just stop for a minute and think. If you're a man who's married, you remember rejoicing over your bride. I hope you still rejoice over your bride. But there's something utterly delightful and new about that day, right? And if you're a woman who's been married, I hope you have a sense of what it was like for your husband to have rejoiced over you in that way. And if you're honest with yourself and you know your own heart and you know the proneness is to, to wander, you might ask, how is it possible that my God could rejoice over me in that way? And Zephaniah 3.17 says that he will rejoice over you with loud singing. Some of us uh, would say, how is that possible? It's possible because he's rejoicing over his completed work in Jesus, his son, and that he sees the end from the beginning and how we will be a radiant and spotless bride in his presence. We see the same Old Testament imagery brought into the new. In Ephesians 5, uh, Paul is speaking to husbands and wives. And he tells husbands that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the work of Jesus in us, his bride. It goes on to say that Jesus nourishes and cherishes his church as Husbands should their wives. And at the end of the chapter, after Paul quotes the the blueprint of marriage for this reason or this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, which was Moses' comment that the Lord proclaimed at the very first marriage of Adam and Eve in Exodus 2. Paul says, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it it refers to Christ and his church. The two become one. We sing the hymn, the church is one foundation. One of the verses says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her. For her life he died. So John introduces us to the bride here in chapter 19, and it's us. It's the church. Now, the actual vision, the description of the bride, we, we, we don't read until chapter 21, so we'll be there soon. But here in, or, or excuse me, in chapter 21, verse 9, the angel says to John, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And what follows is this glorious, symbolic description of the glorified church, the new Jerusalem. But let's look at this imagery of the, of the marriage and the marriage supper of the Lamb. In, in, in Jewish tradition, there was first a betrothal period. The bridegroom would enter into an agreement with the, his bride's father. So the bridegroom and the father, if you've, seen, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, you see that taking place in that Jewish family, where the, the prospective groom makes this arrangement with the father, and a betrothal agreement is made, and it's sealed in the presence of witnesses. You might think about Joseph's betrothal to Mary. It wasn't as an engagement today where if you break the engagement, you might have to return some gifts and such, but better than a divorce. But 
in that day, a broken betrothal was almost as dramatic as a broken marriage. It was considered binding. And in that betrothal, a bride price, a dowry, is agreed upon that the groom is to pay to the bride's father for the privilege of marrying his daughter. And that betrothal period then usually lasted a number of months while the groom and the bride prepare themselves for marriage. He gathers together the resources to pay the bride price, and she prepares herself and her garments for the wedding. And then when that dowry is paid, the wedding is commenced, and the groom, accompanied by his friends, go to the, to the bride's home where she lives with her father, and she comes out, and they escort her together to his home where the marriage celebration takes place, and there's a feast, oftentimes lasting five to seven days. And William Hendrickson in describing this draws out parallels to the Lord Jesus with his bride, that in Christ the bride was chosen from all eternity. And the wedding has been announced throughout the Old Testament and then again in the New. (coughs) And the Lord Jesus took on flesh and blood that he might come and betroth us to himself. And he paid the bride price at Calvary when he died on the cross. He purchased us with his own precious blood. So now we're in that betrothal period. We're awaiting the coming of our bridegroom. The bride is preparing herself for that great and glorious day which, which, which uh, Paul calls the blessed hope in Titus 2, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're in the middle of, as theologians say, the already and the not yet. But on that great day, he will come for his bride. The wedding feast will begin. All heaven will sing and rejoice with great hallelujahs. And that's the scene that's depicted here for us in Revelation chapter 19. So let's look at the bride. That's us. If you're a Christian, you're part of the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, I betroth you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul is in that imagery assuming the role of the bride's father and saying, I brought you to your bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. And so now we're in that betrothal period. We are like an engaged couple, eagerly awaiting the coming of our glorious bridegroom. And on that day, we will enter in and enjoy perfect, unhindered communion with our Savior and Lord. So so John is describing for us here this blessed hope. He's describing the longing of our souls where, uh, as Romans 8 says, the entire creation is groaning in anticipation with eager expectation for that day. The glorious fulfillment of God's promise appears to all men. Now, if you've been engaged before, or if you're engaged now, You understand that waiting can be difficult. It can be frustrating. It may seem like that day will never get here. You have all this great promise and anticipation of unspeakable joy with a big sign that says, not yet. And we struggle sometimes with that anticipation. So in the meantime, as we wait, what what are we supposed to be about? Well, 
I tell young couples, it's not just about planning a wedding, it's planning a life together, which is why premarital counseling is so very important. A little plug again. But here, what are we to be about as we wait for our bridegroom? Chapter 19, verse 7 says, we should be making ourselves ready. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. How? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This preparation is symbolized by the the wedding gown. It's made of fine linen, bright and pure. Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus, in Ephesians 5, he says, the Lord Jesus has cleansed his bride that he might present her to himself as a radiant bride or in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless or without blemish. And that's a picture of sanctification completed. We're We're justified, we're declared righteous in Christ, but we're being conformed to the image, and that's a picture of that process being perfect and complete when we enter into the presence of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. He will complete that work He's begun in us. And on that great day, that glorious day, there will be no more sin. There will be no more guilt. There will be no more lingering effects of the sins we have committed and those sins committed against us. There will be no more trauma or sorrow, or any such thing. We'll be a radiant, spotless bride. But I want you to look very carefully at verse 8, because it says it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen. This is not pointing to something Jesus has done. It sort of is, because it says it was granted to her. But it really is talking about something she does. She clothes herself with fine linen. It's not Jesus clothing her. Verse 7 says, the bride has made herself ready. The fine linen, it tells us, are the righteous acts of the saints, not the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, now, take a step back. I am not suggesting that the righteousness by which we enter into the presence of God comes from us. It doesn't. It comes from the Lord Jesus himself. Revelation 6.11, we find the martyrs under the throne. They're each given a white robe. That came from the Lord, not from them. In chapter 7, verse 9, this great multitude in heaven is clothed with white robes, symbolizing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In verse 14 in chapter 7, it says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, not in their own good deeds. Isaiah 61 and verse 10, Isaiah writes, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in the God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with jewels, with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And so you see that, 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 that combination. He has clothed me with righteousness, and yet the, the bride adorns herself with jewels. So what are we to make of the statement, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints? If you remember, last month, our, our verse of the month was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We're his work, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, 10. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance that we should do them. Now, verse 8 and 9 say that it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of works. It's the gift of God. Uh, are not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, lest no man should boast. So we're not saved by our works. But the very next verse says we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ, that's what he does, for good works that we're supposed to do. He prepared them in advance, but we still have to do them. And so there's this, there's this cooperative relationship. Justification is said to be monergistic. Erg means work. Mono means one. One person works. God justifies himself. He does all the work. Sanctification is said to be synergistic. It's not all up to you, but it's also not something God does for you that you receive effortlessly. There's work that God does for his workmanship, but there's work we must do. We must walk in those good works. And so as we look not at uh, what is the basis on which we enter into the presence of our Lord, not our own robes of righteousness, but the robes Jesus gives us, but here we're looking at a marriage imagery And the groom does not go out and make or purchase the the, the wedding gown. The bride secures that. She has clothed herself with fine linen. But I want you to notice it was granted to her. So you still see the sovereign grace of the Lord, even in that, that she would clothe herself with this fine linen. Good works are our response to the grace of God. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by His grace, but it's grace that works, that expresses itself in good works. It's the evidence of God's grace at work in our lives. And if there is no transformation leading to good works, not perfect in this life, but but sincere and genuine, then we have to ask the question, has there been real grace? Has there been a new heart established in this person? Are our works ever enough in this life? Of course not. And in fact, our confession says this. It says believers are accepted through Christ, and thus their good works are accepted in Him, even though accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Did you hear that? Isaiah says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have nothing, nothing good, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We've got nothing to offer the Lord of any eternal value. And yet, there's something about good works that we're called to do that have eternal significance. The, the fine linen are the, are, the, are the righteous deeds of the saints. How do those righteous deeds become acceptable? Because the very best we can do is still tainted by our own innate, uh, our own clinging, indwelling sin, a selfishness and mixed motives and all the rest. And the answer is our works are accepted the same way we are accepted, in the Lord Jesus and by His grace, cleansed with His blood. So we clothe ourselves with fine linen, bright and clean. We prepare for that day by serving the Lord, by doing righteous deeds. We come now then to this glorious benediction in verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Turn with me to Isaiah 25, if you would, because this event is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, verse 6. I love hearing the rustling of papers. You don't hear that when everybody's on their phone. I use my phone for my Bible sometimes, but, but there's something wonderful about looking at it on the page. Isaiah 25, verse 6, on this mountain of the Lord of hosts will make 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow and of wine, or aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that's spread over all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah prophesies this glorious day, which we find described here in Revelation chapter 19. Now, the angel proclaims blessedness, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We close our services with a benediction, a a declaration of blessing. Some of you, uh, we we see, uh, do you know the difference between a blessing and a doxology? A doxology is praise to the Lord. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be power and glory forever and ever. That's a doxology, an expression of praise. A blessing is the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. So we find this benediction, this proclamation of blessing. Now, it's, it's very interesting. In the book of Revelation, there are actually a number of benedictions or proclamations of blessing. Does anybody want to guess how many there might be in the book of Revelation? Maybe seven? What an interesting coincidence. Or maybe God knew what he was doing. He was doing something very intentional. I think that's it. Well, this is the fourth blessing that we find in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and if you recall, many times I've closed our service with the last two blessings found in chapter 22. But there's a, a very common feature in what's called apocalyptic literature, and that's what Revelation is. It's called the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Apocalyptic literature is predictive prophecy, and it's very symbolic. And one of the, pro- one of the consistent features is many times the symbols kind of overlap. All right? And so here we have this overlap, because blessed are all those who are invited to the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, who's invited? Who are the guests? There's the bridegroom, and there's the bride. Now, he's not proclaiming a blessing on the angels who are going to be there to watch. It's, it's still for us. So we are the bride, and we are the guest. There's an overlap, isn't there? In our Sunday school class, going through uh, how people change, this morning, the, the lesson was actually, so you're married to Christ. And we talked about the present implications of our union with Christ through the lens of marriage. And Andrea Prasarczyk made the very interesting observation that not only are we the bride, but we're also the attendants. And so as we one another one another, we're helping one another get ready for that day. So we're the bride, we're the guests, and we're the attendants. And these lovely and wonderful symbols overlap to add richness to the hope that will be fulfilled on that day. Mounts points out that the wedding supper is actually not a specific feast that has a beginning and end. It has a beginning. But actually, it's this eternal relationship that we have between the Lord Jesus and his bride, this eternal dwelling of delight. And it's, he says it's a, the wedding supper is a feast 
that lasts forever. I think he's right. Isaiah 62, verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And on that day, hear me, Christian, we will realize the depth of the love that the Lord Jesus has for us. Over and over in Scripture, we find these these descriptions of his love. God demonstrates his own love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we're supposed to think about the death of Jesus and apply that to our hearts in such a way that we conclude, yes, he must really love me. And when Paul says, uh, there's nothing in heaven or earth or all creation that could ever separate us from the love of Christ. And so we're supposed to think about that, and there's this undying love that he has for us and this absolute security we can have. But we have to think about it. And we have to battle against those, those impulses that cry out, how long, O Lord, will you forsake me forever sometimes? And we don't feel or sense or see his presence, and we don't, it, it takes spiritual fervor and vigor to lay hold of the reality that he loves us. But in that day, we will bask in his love, and it will be glorious. He will display the full measure of his love. Faith will give way to sight, and we will feel and experience and be overwhelmed with the love our Savior has for us. We will rejoice over him, but he will also rejoice over us, and we will stand in utter amazement that such a glorious King and God and Creator and Redeemer and Lamb and Bridegroom could love us so. Now, if you're thinking, that just sounds too good to be true. Well, the angel anticipated that and said in verse 9, these are the true words of God. I'm not blowing smoke here. The message I'm giving you, I am delivering straight from the mouth of your God. It's not just my message, the angel saying. This came from the throne. It came from God. The true words of God himself. And at that point, John does something misguided. Verse 10 tells us, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, we've, we've gone through 19 chapters, or 18 and a half chapters, I guess, in the book of Revelation, and John has seen visions that would absolutely overwhelm the senses. And yet, this is only the second time in the entire book we find John falling down in worship. The first time is in chapter 1 when he sees the Lord Jesus, and he falls down at the feet of Jesus as though a dead man, it says. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him and say, don't do that. Jesus touches him and comforts him and says, don't fear. He's seen the hosts of heaven falling down before the throne and before the glory of God. And yet only there and here do we see John falling down in worship. He's overcome, as it were, by the glory of this fulfillment of the blessed hope, but in A mistaken zeal, this mature, godly saint falls down and worships an angel. And the angel says, don't do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you. We're on the same level. We're on the same, uh, same place as we stand before the God. We are simply fellow servants of God. I'm just a messenger like you. The command is worship God. And I want to make a very significant observation here. We live in a day when people question, is Jesus really God? It's the, 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 the name of the doctrine is the deity or the godness of Christ. Is Jesus God? And I am convinced without a doubt in my mind that Scripture is very, very clear. He is God. And this is a powerful testimony to that fact. If you'll think about it for just a minute. Over and over in Revelation, we see the saints and we see angels. We see the hosts of heaven, the four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down and worshiping God. And on a number of occasions, it's very clear their worship is directed at, to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, and He receives that worship. Never rebukes it, never corrects it. It's a noble and glorious thing that in chapter 5, all of heaven worships the Lamb. And clearly, Jesus receives that worship because it is His. And the testimony of the angel here is, do not worship the angel, worship God alone. So if there's worship being offered to Jesus, the only thing we can rightly conclude is that He is God. Now I want you to notice also, and here the, the angel refers to the testimony of Jesus. He actually refers to it twice in verse 10. He identifies with John and his brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then he says at the end, or John writes, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And this testimony of Jesus, the gospel, is the good news of what Jesus has done, what he's accomplished as he, as he came to this earth, took on human flesh, as he uh, went to the cross, paying for our sins, taking that punishment upon himself, giving to us his perfect righteousness received by faith alone. That is the testimony of Jesus, the salvation which He purchased for us in His blood. And here we find the culmination of this gospel as we enter into this wedding celebration and this wedding feast of the Lamb, that great and glorious day which uses marriage as a symbol, as 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 an image to help us conceive of that which is inconceivable the kind of intimacy and the kind of union we will enjoy with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting, though, also in this text. We're portrayed as the bride, but it never calls Jesus the bridegroom. He's called the bridegroom in other places in the Bible, but here he's called the lamb. Did you see that? Several times he's called the lamb, the marriage supper of the lamb. The lamb gives emphasis to his humility, to his sacrifice, to the greatness of his love for us, the fact that he is our redeemer, and he came to redeem for himself, to purchase with his own blood a beloved bride. Verse 50 proclaims, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This wedding feast will be a feast like no other. And as I said a moment ago, every guest who is invited, who is blessed, will be part of the bride. My question to you this morning is, are you on the guest list? Are you part of the bride of Jesus Christ? Are you a Christian? Have you 
recognized that Babylon, we've looked at Babylon in previous messages. She is this gaudy harlot with no husband. And in time, uh, she represents all of the pleasures and pomp and pride of this present world that is seeking to draw people away from God, competing with the church, as it were. But she's a, a, a husbandless prostitute. And in time, she will be stripped naked, and her flesh will be devoured, and she will be burned up with smoke. I don't care how glorious and attractive and wonderful and beautiful and enticing the pleasures of this world may appear to you right now. And Satan is very, very good at appealing to our pleasure. He is a fisher of men, and he doesn't fish with a rubber boot. He baits us with lures that are attractive to us. And I don't care how overwhelmingly wonderful Babylon can appear to your eyes right now, it is a smoke screen. And if you throw in your lot with Babylon, with this world, you will perish with her. Why would you do that when there's this feast and there's this invitation? Come, Jesus said, all you who are weary, heavy laden, come to me, I'll give you rest. As many as come to me, I will never drive away. He calls us to turn away from going our own way and to place our faith and our trust entirely in him. He will clothe us with robes of righteousness. He will accept us into his church, his bride, his precious people. And if you will come to him, he will do that with you. And you will be part of that glorious bride on that wonderful day. And you will sing hallelujah. My Lord has begun to reign. I'm going to urge you, if you have questions about this, there are many of us here who would be delighted to sit down and talk with you further immediately after the service. If Kids, talk with mom and dad today. But don't, don't delay and continue to walk down the path that Babylon holds forth thinking somehow you'll figure it out. Run to Christ. Why, why would you not? What do you have or what are you seeking that could possibly compare with this wedding feast we've described? And what are you seeking and clinging to that could possibly make the destruction of Babylon and being part of that worth what you have now but you won't keep? Think. Run to Christ. Christians, we, we look forward to that day, that wedding supper of the Lamb. And it may seem to you like that day will never come. It may be sooner than we think. But in the meantime, what are we to be doing? We're to be getting ourselves ready. We're to be preparing our bridal gown with fine linen, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. Are you serving the Lord Jesus? Are you diligent, faithful in carrying out those righteous deeds that are expressions of loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you serving? Are you giving? Are you praying? Are you caring? Are you getting involved in moving toward others in ways that, that the Lord will see? And as you let your light shine before men, they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Or maybe you're doing things behind the scenes that nobody sees, but not even a cup of cold water will fail to be rewarded on that day? Are you adorning your wedding gown? 
clothing yourselves actively with the righteous deeds that God has granted for you to do. We're going to close our service this morning observing the Lord's Supper. And this supper is a foretaste. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an indication of what is to come of that wedding feast that we have in heaven. We call it communion. We commune with the Lord, but we also commune with one another. Because we'll, every single child of God from all eternity, Old Testament, New Testament saints, present saints, we'll all be communing together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So I want to look around at your brothers and your sisters in Christ. We will be there together in the presence of our Lord. And so he invites you, if you're his child, if you're a Christian, come to the table. Now let me, let me say this briefly. The Lord's table is for those who are Christians, who have trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So if you cannot say, I know that I'm in Christ, I've put my faith in him, then we ask you to, to let the elements pass. Now, as soon as I said, I know that I'm in Christ, I thought, well, what about the Christian who's struggling with assurance? Well, this is a means of grace to fortify your assurance. Are you trusting in Christ? I might not feel saved. I might feel far away. Well, this is a means of grace to remind you, to bring to your mind, to illustrate to your senses, your taste, and your sight, and your ears, and your touch, the feast of our Lord Jesus. So if you're trusting in him, even if your faith is weak, he says, come. A number of you are in transition. You have come to our church, not yet joined. You just moved here or whatever. And I've heard people ask the question, well, I'm not a member of a church right now. Are you pursuing church membership? Come. If you're perpetually disconnected from God's church, I would urge you, deal with that first. But if you are seeking to walk faithfully as a child of God in the bride of Christ, in his church, That's the table is for you. So I want to invite the men who are going to serve to come forward at this time.